This is a download from the BBC. For more information and our terms of use, go to www.bbc.co.uk forward stroke Radio 4. Hello. Today, as the year ends, we have Tom Kerridge. Let's be having you. A Michelin. A Michelin-starred chef, yet slender. Alex Wheatle is a star author of young adult fiction and inventor of great phrases. And Katie Mellower, who you may have noticed, has brought this whole Georgian choir. And finally, kindly taking time off from twirling his villainous whiskers or whatever in the Palladium pantomime, we have Nigel Havers. And since it is very much roomier than our usual shoebox of a studio, we have sneaked in a large choir who are featured on Katie Melua's new album, the Gory Women's Choir from Georgia. That's the Georgia and the Caucasus, not in America. And I cannot think of a lovelier and wintrier start than to ask them to sing first, The Little Swallow. the gory women's choir with a little swallow traditional new year song isn't it katie for, from georgia well its roots are in U- the ukraine yeah. and a lot of people know it in the english language version which is carol of the bells and while making this album it was a beautiful discovery that uh, it's ukrainian and because ukrainian is close to the slavic language we all speak russian in georgia 
so it was easy for us to pronounce. And one of the three guests listening to that rather thrilling harmony, and I totally like that. I love it. It makes me feel sort of all warm and cosy and <laughs> curling up by the fire. It's the most beautiful sound, but, isn't it? But you can sort of hear the snow outside, can't yes. you? Um, Alex, you made music yourself in the raw rap world. What do you make of that? I feel like I could just um, mellow out with um, some rum and coke and put my feet up. Inspiring. Tom Kerridge. Yeah, yeah. Um, amazing, angelic, uh, stunning. Yeah, jaw-dropping. It was, you can tell by the silence of the audience afterwards, didn't know whether to clap or just like, just little tears in eyes. Yeah. Well, let's start with Katie, who, who was, you know, is a singer-songwriter, has had six consecutive albums here in the top ten up there with Kate Bush and all that. But the new album in winter, it's moving you a little bit away from the pop genre, isn't it? Um, Very much so. Discovery. To be honest, everything about this latest album has been new for me because I used to work with a fantastic collaborator, Mike Batt, but we had a certain way of working and it was pretty much the same way, those first six albums that were made, pretty much the same way. Now, we parted ways on the last record, and so I was suddenly, you know, faced with, I guess, a blank slate. And um, I wanted to go home to Georgia and see what I could find there in terms of, I don't know, the way music's made there, the way people interact with art there, which I, f I had a feeling would be different, and so it certainly was. You left there when you were very small, didn't you? I did. I was uh, nine years old. Just and turning around. How much memory do you have of that childhood? I have there? an awful lot of memory of Georgia because I really had the best childhood there, despite the fact that it had just gone through the breakup of the Soviet Union and the country's infrastructure came to a complete standstill. So we went from being a nation where we had basic good amenities, um, you know, up until the late 80s, and then suddenly no electricity, no hot water, tokens to buy bread and um, rations. So it was quite a, a shock. But even in the good times, you, you had all that history behind you, didn't you? I mean, Stalin's home village, isn't it? Gori is where Stalin was, of course, born, and this is where the choir are from. Now, I'd never been to Gori before this project, but this, you know, the choir is from there, and we had to go and build a recording studio there because there's no recording studios out there. I mean, I feel like I've been so lucky to have made these records out here in the UK, but then to go home and have to build the studio to kind of talk to the girls about how to use headphones, how to monitor the music with that. It's literally been like learning everything from the beginning, and it's been very inspiring. Going back again to your, your childhood and the, the things you... What are the things you most remember there? You must remember family stories uh, in the forest. I do, actually. But also, I mean, you, you had a grandfather, I think, suffered under Stalin. Yeah, he's had an extraordinary life. And one particular story that really struck me as I was growing up was um, he was sent to a Siberian labour camp when he was 15 years old for being a bandit. He was called a bandit because he gave an alibi to his friends for stealing bread. So he was sent to a Siberian labour camp... And then he used to tell me these stories of escaping from it. And the landscapes he'd describe of the frozen Russian forests were so beautiful in my mind. You know, and the way he'd tell them was so much passion. It just became this sort of magical, imaginary location for me where I'd see my granddad as a young man kind of escaping the clutches of prison guards. But of course, I don't know how much of it is actually true or how much of it is myth. <laughs> Because he likes to drink. He really likes... <laughs> <laughs> so but, so you, you're nine years old and your father's a doctor, so you, you come over here, you come to Belfast. I mean, what, what was that like? I mean, did you, did, you, did you immediately settle? I mean... Uh... 
we did settle because we knew it was so extraordinary to be moving to the UK. The impressions we had of the UK and of the West was really informed from the movies. So when we did have electricity, we'd watch Hollywood films and the music. You know, again, once the lights came on, we'd, we'd have it for about an hour during the day. Everyone would rush to their... Well, mum would rush to the washing machine or, <laughs> you know, something else. Um, but the uncles who lived with us, they would rush to their record players and they would put on Queen, Led Zeppelin, the Beatles. <laughs> and so, you know, we were moving to a country where, you know, I knew these things had been made and where people were working with these wonderful, I guess, forms of art, you could say. But then once we moved here, um, it was Belfast we moved to, and, you know, some people might say, gosh, that's like going from fireplace into the fire. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it wasn't as far as we were concerned. There was electricity, there was hot water, you could fill a whole bath, and then the way the streets were laid out, everything seemed so neat and did, tidy. Did they find out straight away that you could sing? Well, I couldn't speak English, but being so young, I could pick it up quite quickly. But the music was the thing that really broke the barrier for me at school. And we actually had a nativity play, and that was the first nativity play that I'd ever been involved in. We didn't have nativity plays back in Georgia. And uh, I got given the part of the dove, which was quite a principal part, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> did you sing? I did sing, yeah. I, had, I think I had a couple of songs. I think one of them was Silent Night. So moving, you, I know you then moved later on to London, so the music you grew up with would be what of your, of your generation? I mean, yeah. R&B and rock and rap, or what, what did you grow up with? Well, correct, once I moved to the West, we had things like, you know, Britney Spears, the boy bands, the girl bands, Spice Girls, Backstreet Boys, but it was the acoustic music that particularly appealed to me. And I sort of discovered it really through Eva Cassidy. Mm. Um, I came across her work from the great Terry Wogan. Well, I was going to say, in the year that we're mourning him, I think, and mm. especially in this space, in the radio theatre, we should remember, it was Wogan who first played you on air, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. He was really instrumental to the start of, I guess, my records doing so well. But it, it happened all... It seems to have happened quite quickly. Anyway. When you first started playing great big venues, I mean, I know you did 2000 at the Shepherd's Bush Empire with a full orchestra and so on. Was that alarming to someone like you? Because I see you more as a kind of intimate kind of singer. Yeah, it, you know what, it was. But I just thought, what a phenomenal chance. I mean, I'm definitely a lot quieter and um, shyer than perhaps show business wants people to be. So yeah, it was a bit alarming, but I just thought, this is the most incredible opportunity. I didn't feel like I could afford to not grasp it. Has it, I mean, we've got Alex here, who's, who's written, so you've written lyrics, written songs. Oh, um, in my youth. In your, I in your youth, lyrics for yes. Over 20 years, I think, but that's how I first got a break into writing. Um, I wanted to be um, the next Bob Marley, basically, you know, living in Brixton, <laughs> you know, late 70s, early 80s. You know, he was one of my heroes, but um, I didn't have um, any melody, unfortunately. Is it, <laughs> I could is write, it, but no melody. Is it, when, when you're writing, Katie, I was going to ask, are you, is it the melody or the words or the rhythm or the feel? What comes first? I think there's music in language, and so when we speak, there's certain sort of melodic characteristics. And for me, it's about bringing that kind of internal thing out and joining it all together. So there isn't, for me, there isn't a separation between lyrics and melodies. They need to be so sort of threaded together. 
and it's a kind of story. We're going to move to a story now. We're going to hear the choir again at the end of the programme, I have to say. But Alex Wheatle's story, I I was looking at it and thinking it's a sort of intimate epic. It's one man's journey through a lot of danger, but right here in Britain with not a frozen forest to our name because he is a survivor and a witness of, apart from anything else, the scandalous Shirley Oaks children's home, which is still being investigated. He went through tough teens, a riot and prison, and he has emerged as this remarkable writer and poet and lyricist. He, He wrote 17 years ago a book called Brixton Rock, then five more novels, and now in the area of young adult fiction, Alex Wheatle is a prize-winning star. He is an MBE for services to literature. Wow. Yeah, it's <laughs> it sometimes is an epic. hard it to is an epic, myself. isn't it? Yeah. It, it, it is. I mean, I never really... Uh, I mean, I was a kid, you know, institutions make you feel so worthless and so useless that um, you carry this into your adult life and you think that you cannot try anything, you cannot achieve anything. But um, you spoke about prison, and that's what really changed me because my cellmate was um, an elder... Rastaman. He was in his 50s. And he challenged me. He said, um, don't let your past hamper your future. You know, you can make something of yourself. So I want you to um, leave this place and uh, educate yourself. So, um, we hit this again and again in prisons, uh, from yeah. prisons, don't we? It's, if you meet the right person, it could be a visitor, it could be yeah, somebody lecturing as you lecture fortunate. there now. I, was very, I remember him hitting me on the head with a, um, a copy of C.L.R. James' The Black Jacobins. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, read this. This will teach you about your history, your culture, and um, your place in the world. The second day I came out, I went to Brixton Library. And um, I had no idea that you had to be a member to um, take out books. So I went there with two black bin bags. <laughs> and, just I, to them. <laughs> and I walked through the aisles and um, just picked up what I fancied. And uh, librarians didn't really approach me. I think they thought I was crazy. Oh. That's how I. Yeah, how would you? I mean, I you're growing, how would you ended up in care? I mean, how... um, my mother. She was married to um, a violent man, and she tried to leave him. This is in Jamaica. And um, one day, she, um, as he went to work, she got her children together. She took them to her parents' house. She went to Kingston. She finally ended up in the UK in 1961. She worked in a Woolworths store. My father had been here since 1954, um, working as a carpenter. They met. They had an affair. And my mother became pregnant with me. But when she um, was six months pregnant, her husband, my mother's husband, came to look for her, so there was a big confrontation. Yeah, so. And so the result of that, when I was born, my mother thought it best that my biological father look after me because she was still scared of what her husband might um, do to her or me. And he tried his best for the first two or three years, but um, it became too much for him. There wasn't that much help for young men back then to um, look after children if you were, if you're working. And so I ended up in Lambeth Social Services. Um, We've heard a lot about the particular children's home where you were and others of that period. And as you say, what comes out often is not just the violence, it's not just being mm-hmm. slapped about and really badly treated, yeah. but a sense of being made worthless. I mean, yeah. did people explicitly say to you that you weren't worth much? Well, I remember when I asked about where my parents were, this is when I was about seven or eight, I was told repeatedly that I was left on the dock of the bay and they've gone back to the jungle. And um, it really seeps into your conscience. It seeps into every uh, bone of your body. And you grow up with this. And so you grow quite hateful. And you you grow not trusting of any kind of adult or institution. Um, You you have so um, little confidence. But it's only um, when I went to prison, when I was widely read, and I read about um, other peoples of the world and uh, Africa, Europe, everywhere. 
And you met, it was, it was Brixton Riots, wasn't it? Yes, uh, Brixton Riots. Um, I had a bit of a, um, a small confrontation with a policeman. <laughs> and so, as you say, and, this, uh, this, this Rasta guy, who I very much hope is out now and, and yeah, he's standing out, he's for out. Parliament. He's, he's in his uh, 80s now. Because he's a clearly a very, very useful man, make him education minister. But yeah. in, in your first book, your hero was Brenton, who's 16, yeah. who, like you, has left care and living in a hostel and so on. Yeah. And there's, there's an important sort of sense in it that people who deal with him have absolutely no idea of what his life is like. Yeah. And it seemed to me that what you do in your writing is try to bridge this lack of empathy between Definitely. communities, between classes, between races, to try and, try and tell us what it's like that side and also to listen to what it's like on the other side. Uh, I think one of Brenton's famous lines is, um, you don't know my life, you know, speaking to a social worker. And that's exactly the experience I had. And so really in writing, I'm just trying to uh, show to the reader, okay, this is our experience, please understand us. You know, sometimes we might rage, sometimes we're not good in relationships, sometimes we struggle with day-to-day -day life living. So this is my statement to you, that please try and understand us. Mm. So, so really, I, I wrote Bricks and Rock as a representation of um, many of the people I grew up with and the struggles they had once they leave care, because that is a big issue as well. Once you pass 18, that is it. The council um, just cut the threads and you're yeah. left on your own devices. But one of the things which absolutely links you up with everybody else on this programme is this, this innate gift for language and street slang and patois. I, I hadn't come across your books before, and I was reading some of your phrases, and I was thinking, this is the PG Woodhouse of South London street life. <laughs> right. are, you, are you listening all the time to kids' language, um, or are you actually making yes, this up? Yes, but um, I felt that if I was on a 109 bus, and I keep on eavesdropping on students uh, or pupils uh, who are 13, 14, it might be a bit creepy. <laughs> so uh, I decided, you know, I better start inventing my own kind of slang and my own kind of phrases, rather than, you know, I'm 53, I'm hardly down with the youth anymore. Yeah, but I don't, so, your, your DJ patter is fantastic. I mean, I, it's embarrassing to read it out in my sort of, <laughs> sort oh, no. of received pronunciation. <laughs> I am the tongue smacker, lyrics on flow like a newsprinter, more words per second than the steps of a caterpillar. I wrap them up like an apple turnover with my lyrical blender, the twerker dub grime doctor. <laughs> you loved doing that, didn't you? You totally... <laughs> you totally enjoyed writing all that, I'm, didn't you? I'm glad you read that out rather than me. Well, I, <laughs> it would have been more convincing, but less entertaining, maybe. <laughs> I mean, you, you're successful now, and you've got a, a place and esteem and a family. Is there any part of you that sometimes kind of twists and remembers the children's home and the bad years? Of course, but I think I've learned coping mechanisms. I mean, writing, for one. I mean, the reason why I started to write was to try and deal with all that angst and bitterness and so on. Going back to the, uh, the Russell man in the prison cell, you know, don't let your past hamper your future. And so I try not to be a victim. You can't let that batter you down. You have to move on and try and um, conquer that. Because otherwise, those people who are in the home, they've won, haven't they? But we do all go back to the bad childhood bits, don't we? I don't know. I mean, Tom, Tom Kerridge, do you? Are there, are there moments that you sort of twist and think, oh, that was a bad bit and it's still inside me? I've considered myself hugely privileged to have grown up as a single-parent family, but at the same point, completely loved, never felt like I missed out on anything ever. So yeah, it's because a, yeah. you have that one security, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, I think it's a big thing, that past, that background, that childhood security is a big thing, I think. Katie, I mean, do you ever, do you ever suddenly feel like a foreigner? I mean, you're a British citizen now. And, uh, well, in the UK? Yes, it's accepted in no, Ireland. No, not at all, because I've always found the people so welcoming and so warm and curious about where I've come from and wanting to hear about it. 
So no, I've never felt like a foreigner. But I feel very lucky to have had the two perspectives. And when you go home, as it were, when you go home, Georgia, um, do you feel do you feel do you still belong there? Because you still have the language. That's a great. I thing. have to say, part of making this album was to reconnect up because you know my Georgian was starting to slip a little bit. We spoke it always at home. Uh, my mum and dad and my little brother, we speak Georgian here in, in, at home in London. But yeah, it was starting to slip. And I was starting to see Georgia really only from the holiday perspective. So I'd go yes. back just for the holidays. So to go and work there and have to set up a studio was different. Yeah, yeah. it was a completely different thing. I must ask, Alex, are there, of all the books you've read, because you've plunged yourself into reading, what, what do you read for comfort if you suddenly need a for comfort, comfort reading um, now? Biographies, they really inspire me. Active biographies too. Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> have you read mine? If not, I'll get a copy for you. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort reading. I mean, I just turn to Nigel because, of course, he's a, he's a panto king. Um, he cheerfully leaps into this role at this time of year, um, despite his long and distinguished screen and stage career and everything. Chariots of Fire, Passage to India, importance of being earnest lately, by way of Coronation Street and Downton and even the Archers. Uh, Nigel currently is the Lord Chamberlain in Cinderella at the Palladium. What's your interpretation? Pompous, smooth, cunning, well, actually, no, evil? I'm, 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 in the programme, it says I'm the Lord Chamberlain, but actually, I'm playing Nigel. Nigel's yeah. the Lord Chamberlain. I'm playing me, really. Um, oh, indeed, everybody else is playing themselves. Julian um, uh, Clary is playing Dandini, but he's actually called Signor Giuliano Dandini Bellini Campari Arabadeci Ferrari Salami. That's his actual book. And his you're, title. Just, you're just Nigel. I'm just Nigel. But I thought you he were says to me, hello, Nigel, what have you got in your clutch bag? <laughs> <laughs> but you're technically a Lord Chamberlain, aren't you? I'm detected. I am Lord Chamberlain. Do you get robes? Do you get robes? No, no, I don't. I get a very sort of camp costume, which I'm very <laughs> pleased with, and I'm thinking of keeping it actually at the end of the run. <laughs> it's fantastic with hats and feathers. It's it's quite a camp afternoon. Do, do you actually... I think the audiences do love it, though. I mean, I, and do you, I do love panto. You, you, know. you really do, don't you? I remember you playing flesh creep in black leather with a whip in Southampton and, yes. and being lashed by Joan Collins at the no, Birmingham was, Hippodrome. That was, was an unforgettable moment. <laughs> it, was actually, it was actually about eight moments, eight yeah. to nine moments a week, wasn't yes, it? Yes, there was, yes. <laughs> I used to come on and Julian and Clary would go, because we obviously work all together all the time, and he'd go, oh, whippity, whippity, whippity. <laughs> And I just would laugh. But that's the nature of Panto. You've um, had oh, yes, it previous, is. previous um, <laughs> wondrous soap outings. You were a caddish seducer breaking Audrey Roberts' heart I in know, Coronation I... Street. Yes. Will Lewis ever come back? Well, we wish to know. I think there's always a strong possibility because I owe Gail 40 grand at the moment. <laughs> and what with interest and stuff, it's coming up to about 50. So I think it's time I... I paid her back, probably. You, you so often get cast in these cad parts. I know, Nigel, I do love you? playing cad parts. Though, so, but who are you modelling? I mean, come on, you grew up as the son of uh, Sir Michael Havers and an eminent family of lawyers. I mean, you can't have ever have met any of these dangerous smoothies, can you, in your youth? No, no, no I haven't. I just... I, I, but <laughs> you, they're much more fun to play than sort of regular nice guys. I, 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 there's just much more to it. There's much more you get your teeth into. And so I've always been attracted by... Playing the smooth talking cad. Hello, come up and see me. <laughs> Ever seen a film called Chariots of Fire? <laughs> <laughs> but genetically speaking, you should have been a lawyer, shouldn't you, really? I should have all, been your actually, fam all your family. And my father was bitterly disappointed when I, when I came you know, in, in, into the house one day in tights and a. You know, and a <laughs> 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 but however, my, my elder brother. 
did absolutely everything correctly. Actually, I became an undergraduate without being an undergraduate. I, I, I lived in, in um, my brother's digs in uh, Corpus Christi, and I went to lectures, and I ate in hall, and I had a gown, but I was never a part of the university. <laughs> and, and no one discovered it for three years. It was incredible. I was educated entirely for free. <laughs> growing, growing up um, uh, with, with these, I mean, with your taste for showbiz, did you used to meet these celebrity clients? Because your, your father represented the Rolling Stones, didn't he? He did, stage? and um, it was the summer of 1967, probably the most wonderful summer of my life, because um, a huge flash of news came up that the Rolling, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, had been arrested on a drugs charge. And my father, watching the television, said, I hope to God they don't ask me to defend them. <laughs> and, then, and you, were, you an presumably later, were praying well, that I they was, would. But an hour later, the phone went, and my father disappeared and came back and said, I shall be defending the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a typical from my father. But, I mean, that, so we were sworn to secrecy, but that summer they came and stayed, and, and Dad um, eventually got them off. And they were the most famous guys in the world at that stage. So there I was, sort of having tea with Mick and Keith. I mean, it was just <laughs> amazing. <laughs> I must ask you, because we're sitting here in the, in, on the, the beating heart of Radio 4 in the radio theatre, about your last radio outing. Mm. Um, because I know that you, you started in radio way back before the flood. You were on Mrs Dale's diary, I weren't was. you, long ago? I was um, Mrs Dale's grandson. I seem to remember. Do you remember, do you remember what you had to say? I, I, don't, I remember Jessie Matthews was playing Mrs Dale's, and she had a big shine for me. She chased me around the piano in the, in the recording <laughs> studio. I was a young man at the time, um, <laughs> but she was lovely. I have to say, I have to say, for <laughs> the, many, the very, very young people in this audience tonight, Mrs. Yeah. Dale's diary was a was, unbelievably yes. tedious, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely classic and, and wonderful. She, she, every episode began with her saying, "I'm terribly worried about somebody." Wasn't about she? Jim. That's Jim, right. Jim. They, oh, it's, it's I was not, not about such a young audience as it looks. Fancy that. <laughs> but anyway, now you have stepped into that notorious episode in The Archers as foreman of the jury. Yes. In the case of Helen stabbing Rob in the stomach. Well, not it was, before time. It was um, wonderful to do. I mean, I got this phone call saying, would I like to do it? And I said, of course, I love The Archers. I'm an Archers fan through and through. And so they said, you know, I'm sorry, we can't send you the script. It's all top, top secret, so you just have to come to the BBC. And I was milling around the, the reception, and there was Eileen Atkins, who was a friend. I said, what are you doing here? She said, well, I'm supposed to be doing The Archers. <laughs> and it got like that. It became... But, you know, it did go down a storm, and it went out on a Sunday, and suddenly I got a phone call saying, um, this is the BBC News at 10, but can we come and interview you? And I said, I, that's fine. I'd had a couple of glasses of red, of course, by then. <laughs> and so outside where I live in London, it's in Kensington, uh, I was doing a, an interview for The News at 10. I mean... That's fantastic. I mean, <laughs> I've really made it now. <laughs> After all those starring parts in films. I mean, I'll first ask others, do, do we enjoy contemplating the, the dangerous but fascinating cad? I mean, Katie, as, as, as a fellow woman, do you rather like caddish heroes? I don't know. Probably not. I mean, I always, I always try and find... Um... <laughs> <laughs> He's looking at her now and she's kind of melting. She's a very attractive no, but... woman. <laughs> <laughs> I think I actually... I'm sorry, I misunderstood the question, actually. <laughs> so are we referring to the type of characters that you're attracted to, uh, right? The type that he plays, that he is, repeatedly. Yes, well, I did a show called The Charmer here, which is uh, about a man who charmed his way um, and into various women's pockets, ah, really, and, made them, <laughs> and then took their money and eventually ended up killing one or two of them. Um, 
And I thought this, would, this could be the end of my career because I thought that people really, really hate this character because he was ghastly, really. And yet, they loved him and they, they wanted more. Oh, and I, I, actually, in the end of this show, I, I'm hanged because I, I'm, I'm found out and guilty and I'm hanged. And they, and they said, well, you're going to do another series. And I said, but... I, <laughs> I, I am in that dead. You know, they, they said, there's always a way. But, I think if there is a, a certain element of kind of charm and something that hides menace within a character and a person, can be quite attractive to women. Mm. I always think sort of women think that love can be so strong that they might be able to um, cure it out of them. I think maybe that's why. It's that vulnerability. See, Tom, Tom Kerridge is looking puzzled. You're, you're clearly yeah. failing on, on failing yeah, No, I, I was just listening to Kate thinking, OK, I've got to be more layered. Layer, layered in a, <laughs> OK, got, uh, that's more attractive to women, being more layered. Alex, layered, are you? Um, all the young girls that I, I tried to chase seemed to be going out with all the, um, the reggae band stars or whatever, and they would just, you know, just have their pick and just use one and go on to the other and so on. And I thought, you know, I just want one! <laughs> I just want one and I'm being nice, I'm taking them to the movies and ice skating, but no, they weren't interested. Yeah. You know, I, I had to be bad. It's all the, fault of, all the fault of people like Nigel on television. Yeah. <laughs> it's all my fault. I think it is time to talk food now. Let's see, does the audience here approve? Do you, should we talk food? Are you hungry? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tom Kerridge is the chef and co-owner of the Hand and Flowers in Marlow, the first and only pub in the world to get two Michelin stars. There's now a second pub as well, the, the Coach. And his television series, well, plenty of them, Bake Off and others he's turned up on. But he's almost equally famous for losing 11 stone over the last three years. Yeah. It's a wonderfully sort of topical thing straight after Christmas, isn't it? It is. Um, especially as you've worked out this very rather cheerful way to do it. It's, it's a book called Tom Kerridge's Dopamine Diet. Yeah, I, I shifted a fair amount of timber to be fair and it was kind of and it was it was approaching my 40th birthday and I think that there are always milestones in your life I think that you start looking at and you, you go you start reflecting on what you've done and then you start looking I think in particular at your 40 if you go well, okay so I'm I'm like I'm about halfway there what's the next 40 years going to be like and you want to make sure that you can get there and there was a point I thought do you know what if I keep going the way I'm going I ain't we're not going to get to 50 so that you start thinking about what you've got to do. It wasn't going to be a two-month quick diet because so many people can get on a two-month painful diet and hate it, but they can get rid of a stone and then fit into, you know, lose a couple of inches off their waist or get into a different dress size or whatever else. And, and you go, okay, but I needed to look at it long-term because I needed to shift a lot. So I wanted to look at how I could do it. And there were so many different things. That because of my lifestyle, the way I work, I work yes, in the kitchen. Had you piled it on really because you were a chef? I mean, was it because you were just always around food? Yeah, but, I'm, you know, I'm in an industry for of party animals, people that like to work and play hard and you stay out at night. And you, the one thing you give up when you're a chef is you give up on sleep. You can get some, but you choose normally to go to the pub and the late night bars and the whatever else and stay out till and very, the very late. And beer doesn't help either, Exactly. So alcohol was a huge part of my life. That was a big, big thing. So that was the first thing I needed to get rid of. So I gave up teetotal now for over three years. The best way of describing it is actually is it, there's, it's a switch and not a dial. I can't do a pint, a drink. It's either on or off. And it was, <laughs> it was on for about for a long time, for about so 10 that, years. So that it took was you on. to what kind of, sort of yeah. 20 stone kind of level? Yeah, pretty much. Like, like I was, you know, I must have been approaching, I, I reckon, the best part of 30 stone. So you go, I, I needed to look That's at... That's where you get actually frightened of the scales, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, I hadn't looked at them for ages. <laughs> they, they, they didn't exist. The difference is as well, I've always been 
comfortable in my own skin. I've always been happy walking into a room. I've never been conscious. It wasn't the pressures of television or media. It wasn't the pressures of being in relationships or meeting people. I wasn't self-conscious at all. It, the only thing was it was about a health thing that I thought I need to do something here. So I looked at the foods and I looked at... Low fat wouldn't work for me because of the way that I weigh, the way that I cook. I use a lot of dairy, a lot of fat. Fat is flavour. So that wouldn't work for me because it would mean the, alter, the way I alter my cooking and I couldn't do that because my role at the Hand of Flowers is the most important one. And I looked at low carbohydrate and I looked at steak and chips as one of the biggest sellers and I could have 50% of it. You could have the steak and not the chips. So I thought, right, let's ditch that. At least I'm having half of something that I want to eat. And then I refocus on the things that I enjoyed. And they're all foods that are high in dopamine. Yes, this is the sort of supposed to be the feel-good secretion in the brain, isn't this it? This is the feel-good no. thing. The things that you love when, you, when gambling, drinking, drugs, sex, that's the dopamine that, that's released into the brain. They're the things you enjoy. But it is available. It is there in an amino acid that's in food. I don't really want to be too technical on it, but the foods that I focus on are ones that make you feel happy. The so diet what, was all about focusing so on foods food, you can what eat. foods make people feel happy that don't so have any sugar in? Really, yeah, sugar's a bad thing. Sugar's upwards and downwards. Sugar gives you massive... It's mm. high in dopamine. You get huge rushes from it, but you also get huge but crashes. you don't feel that good on a leak, really, do you? Or a... It depends how it's cooked, mate. That's uh, it. It's all, <laughs> that's, that's we've, we've got to... <laughs> it's all about technique and it's all about understanding the leaks. And if you have the leaks that are braised for ages and then with blue cheese folded through it and so it's big in flavours, then you put a load of chives through it and a load of like, deep-fried onions that are really crispy without batter on them. So you start getting texture and crunch and understanding and richness and big, powerful flavours. And all of a sudden, it's not just a leek, is it? It's leeks with blue cheese and crispy onions, and now it sounds lovely. So it's focusing... Oh, God, I'm on... hungry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, the whole idea was to focus on technique of bringing food that people already know. They're all dishes that are accessible and available, but they're just... We just try to make sure that the little bits that you think you miss, that when you go on a diet, you focus on everything. You spend... How many people do you see on diets that are so miserable the whole time because they worry about everything they can't eat rather than thinking about the things that you can? So it's enhancing what you can eat. Nigel Havers here famously never eats lunch. No, I, 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 no, I don't. No, he looks yeah. it. Look at him. He's a <laughs> slender, amazing ballet-dancing-looking physique. You, ha you have uh, lean chicken breasts in your dressing room, do, don't yes. you, as your writer? Because it's just not good acting and eating and don't go together for some reason. Energy levels of things. Mm. I, th I think a lot of people who have a big lunch in particular, then you get crash and burn afterwards. It's a battle. It's always a battle. It's all, you always question yourself. Like, no diet is easy. There's no simple answer. Every single one takes willpower. Every single one has to be put in with exercise. I mean, if you think about what you eat and then you exercise every day, then you lose weight. I mean, it's that simple. Who'd have thought it? You know? <laughs> but but <laughs> it does take willpower. But the biggest thing is not being beaten. Like, I, I like the challenge. And if you think, we're all human beings and you sit there and you, you take the challenge. And if you're going to have chips, think of that chip before it's cooked, right? It's a potato. That, po <laughs> that potato just beat you. You it's, wouldn't let a potato beat you in anything else, would you? You just have, you to, call you have a, to not a, get beaten by it. It's a sanctified potato. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you, I was just, we were talking about growing up. You actually started out moving towards acting, didn't you? You, you were in a Miss Marple. I was in Miss Marple, yeah. It was an amazing experience. I left school. I kind of call it my dossiers between 16 and 18. I didn't really have much to do. I didn't, we kind of half did a YTS scheme that I didn't go to. I, do, I, I wasn't, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I ended up in a youth theatre with my best friend who's still a theatrical agent so if you're looking for a new agent Nigel he's always looking for great clients <laughs> uh, but he's um, we both went to a youth theatre my mum took us there because we were kind of just like hanging around nothing to do getting into trouble you know the standard stuff you know drinking cider on park benches and that sort of thing so it was something to do 
And like after a short while of being there, an agent came to see somebody else in a show and then asked if I'd like to go on their books. And I was like, fine, okay, yeah, that sounds like a laugh. And then three weeks later, I was filming a Christmas special in Miss Marple where I, was, I played a ballstool boy. And then I did about a year and a bit of doing odd... So I played a ballstool boy, I played a bully twice in two different <laughs> kids' programmes. And I, I played... The official title was Thug One in London's Birmingham. <laughs> so it's so kind of like... like a, I had about four parts in about a year, and they were all... I, I was typecast so very early. So you're a big, tall, <laughs> yeah. beefy bloke. Yeah. Yes. What do you like in kitchens? Are you one of these ferocious chefs that shouts at people and loses no, it? No, not anymore. I think there was a point... A lot of chefs get to a point, especially when you run your own... It's your own business. And you think all the customers that want to come to your restaurant that book months in advance, they want something of a particular standard. They're expecting it. You have two Michelin stars. They need, it needs to be of a level. So you need to produce that again and again and again. And it must be... It's the same as, I imagine, being in a performance in a show, that each one has to feel like, for that audience, the first time Absolutely. you're doing it. The, the excitement, the energy that has to come out. And if it drops off... It's your name, your pressure that uh, these customers have come from. They're the people that you care for the most. So it needs to be right. But no, we try really hard to make sure that, although it's hard work being a chef, we don't want to make it even harder by making them feel uncomfortable at work. We have the radio on in the mornings. We have prim all Premier League football matches, all, all Champions League football matches on in the kitchen. No sound. But we try to make it an environment where chefs or people can enjoy themselves. But it is hard work, yeah. So you work harmoniously together. I know you, you started the Hand and Flowers as a gastropub with your, your wife, Beth, who's a sculptor. She is, yeah. Were, were you harmonious workers together? You work uh, and Yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, if anyone's met Beth, she, she's an, an incredible woman, amazing. She kind of gave us three years to set up the hand and then would go back to making her own work in her own studio. It took longer than that. But working together, as any husband and wife team will tell you, it's very, sometimes it's very hard to move away from being front of house manager and chef to then going home going, hello, darling, how are you? Nice day at work. It becomes completely <laughs> no, I I encapsulated. Man, yeah, I exactly. <laughs> because the issues are normally between what's happening in the restaurant and in and the kitchen. And it, yeah. But overall, we are an incredible team that works so, so well together. And it's an amazing partnership that works really well. But, you know, like everything, there's always bumpy times, isn't there? Well, talking of harmony, we are going to end this New Year special in a particularly special way because we have Katie Mellua here with the Gory Choir still sitting over there. So I'm going to thank you all first before we go to the music to Tom Kerridge, Alex Wheatle, Nigel Havers and Katie. A happy New Year to all. Katie's going to sing us out in a moment with plain song. And now we just ought to explain why it's about an aeroplane. When I went back to make this album, my grandma reminded me of this footage she had of me and my brother playing when we were young before we moved to the UK. And because everything, the infrastructure of the country was completely broken down, there was lots of abandoned machinery that littered Georgia. And so there was rusty um, trains, uh, tractors, buses. But my gran had a whole airport that was left abandoned. And so we had planes and helicopters that we could go and climb You could climb go and play in. on them. We could go and play on them. And that's what the song is about. Well, that's as, that memory. As Katie goes over and the choir prepares, the thanks to all Tom Kerridge, Alex Wheatle, Nigel Havers and Katie Mellua. Let's have a round of applause for you.
Sad face, can't you feel this cabin soul? 